Welcome to Voices of Australia, the podcast that explores different perspectives on how to build a cohesive society. While acknowledging Australia's original inhabitants, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, every other Australian traces their roots to somewhere else. Since the time of Federation, the politics of who gets to start anew in this land has been a dominant theme. According to recent results from the Scanlon Foundation Research Institute's Mapping Social Cohesion Surveys, there has been a significant increase in positive attitudes towards migrants in Australia. 76% of people agreed that immigrants make Australia stronger in the 2022 survey, up from 63% in 2018. And 94% agreed that people born outside Australia are just as good citizens as those born in this country. However, a housing squeeze, return to normal immigration levels and an intended overhaul of the migration system has brought further dynamics to the conversation around migration in the Australian context. Together with our guests, we're going to delve into the nuances of Australia's approach to migration, the impacts migrants have had on our communities and the necessary reforms needed to build a more cohesive society. To begin, let's first reflect on how we got here. To help us shed light on the post-war history of migration in Australia, our first guest is Con Pagonis. With a background in public sector management and policy development, Con brings decades of experience in migrant settlement and multicultural affairs, having worked extensively at all levels of government. Con's insights will provide valuable insights on the challenges and opportunities of migration. Welcome, Con. Thank you, Anthea. Con, I wonder if you could just tell us a little about what interested you to pursue a career in the multicultural and migrant policy space. I think um, the opportunity to work with people was what interested me. I, I had my mind set on a public sector uh, uh, at the federal level uh, career, and I spent my first decade um, in the labour market area. Um, and in 1986, I had the opportunity to move to Sydney um, and to take up a position with the Immigration Department, initially as a old-style migrant hostel uh, manager, and uh, an opportunity to work directly with people and to provide direct services um, in an area where people were facing the challenges of settling in a new country, um, that's what attracted me, the opportunity to work with people uh, rather than in a sort of more back-of-house bureaucratic role. Absolutely. Now, over the time that you've been involved in the multicultural sector, there have been quite, um, I think it's fair to say, that Australians have changed in how they appreciate some of the benefits that and strengths that come from migrant communities. Have you... and notice sort of misconceptions that that you experienced perhaps back when you first started in that space that have changed over time? Probably. I mean, obviously, we need to go back even a bit further than that to understand the shifts in Australia's attitudes to new arrivals, particularly people who haven't come from the UK, which was our um, traditional source for population growth. I think the crunch came at the end of the Second World War, in fact, if we can go back that far, mm -hmm. uh, where we had a population of only 7 million in a country the size of Europe. And um, 
we were almost invaded. And both sides of politics at that juncture recognised we needed rapid population growth um, to, well for, well, for two main reasons. One, for the defence of such a large continent, but also to um, uh, feed into post-war reconstruction and development of manufacturing. And at that juncture, in fact, that year, 1945, which is the year the Immigration Department was created in August 1945, even before the war had ended, uh, the, the mantra was populate or perish. But, there, there were, but up until that point, in many ways, um, like the rest of the war world that was Eurocentric, uh, Australia was very racist. And in fact, you know, we had the white Australia policy, in fact, in fact, the first piece of legislation uh, passed uh, 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 um, at the beginning of Federation in 1901 was the Immigration Restriction Act, white Australia policy. So we've come a long way to answer your question, Anthea, from, from 1945 to now, where the starting point was, um, in fact, the white Australia policy, mm -hmm. uh, to a point where we've got um, uh, a non-discriminatory non migration policy. And so that, that's been a huge a swing in, in both government policy and public attitudes. And the reasons for that, well, there are, there are a myriad of reasons for that. But, but the first, first and foremost, in, in the late 40s and early 50s, when Australian governments set themselves the nation-building um, challenge of growing the population rapidly, um, the first challenge we faced is we could not source the sorts of numbers of new migrants that we were we were aiming for just from the UK, and 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 gradually um, that fed into the erosion of what was essentially a racist migration policy. Um, but there were there were lots of other factors feeding into that, including shifts in uh, social values. Um, uh, 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 and so that by the 19, mm, 1970s and 80s, um, people's social values had shifted significantly uh, towards uh, embracing um, uh, 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 the more multicultural uh, approach to the evolution of um, Australian society. Uh, uh, Con, there, there is an argument or has been an argument that the people's attitudes, positive or negative, towards migrants has varied depending on the economic circumstances of Australia. Is, is that something that you've seen? Yes, um, but I think even more importantly than that, is leadership at the political level. And and um, one of the reasons our early migration programs from, say, 1945 right up until the 1990s, one of the reasons that was so successful, because even right through that period, regardless of um, the ebbs and flows of, you know, um, the economy, um, we've always had an element in the community um, uh, which has pushed back on new arrivals, particularly new arrivals from cultures that they weren't familiar with. But I think probably the main reason for the success of the migration program right through the 50s and 60s was bipartisan support from both sides of politics. Mm -hmm. Migration wasn't allowed to become a political football 
uh, in the way that it was from the late 1990s onwards. And so even though there were significant elements in the broader Australian community that pushed back on new arrivals, you know, obviously first Greeks and Italians and then people from other areas of the world, um, uh, um, the most significant factor in my mind as to why that was managed well is that both Labor and Coalition supported the immigration program and didn't turn it into a political football. That fell apart by the late 1990s um, mm -hmm. and um, uh, the immigration program was politicised and um, uh, it, 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 it's... it's um, it's been quite unedifying, if you like, yeah. uh, in the way um, governments have uh, 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 led, or in fact not led, um, the public de debate around migration and migration levels. And so, can, so can we so know can that we... Australians are very, um, on the whole, very supportive of immigration and and very welcoming and uh, very uh, comfortable with the diversity that's developed in Australia. But do you see any sort of um, resonance of these negative narratives that coming back up each time uh, it becomes more and more of a political football? Well, yes. I mean, you know, the, the Australian society has a whole range of views um, on, on most things, including immigration. And there's always an element in the community um that will push back on migrants and um new arrivals from different cultures and we we, we saw that again in the late 90s i mean i date the australia was best world world's best practice in as a migrant receiving country in terms of how we settled and how we managed diversity right right up until the late 90s i think and then with the 1996 federal election and the subsequent rise of Hansenism, mm. that gave voice to that element in the community that put, wanted to push back. Now, that, it's always elastic. And as you say, uh, Fancia, um, uh, people's economic security feeds into that sense of um, insecurity and accepting significant numbers of new arrivals and so on and so forth. But that, that element is always there. And, and again, it needs to be managed with strong political leadership, yeah. which we haven't had a lot of over the last 20 years. Um, so um, uh, I, I think, I think again, I go back to my point I made earlier, and it all comes down to leadership, yeah. particularly political leadership uh, in the public uh, opinion arena uh, on these issues. And um, it's... Such a sensitive area politically because politicians are um, concerned not to lose votes and constituency. Uh, and um, that sort of played out in the late 90s, where with the rise of Hansenism, um, the Howard government in the late 1990s recognised that it needed to give some leadership and, in fact, pledged. $1.3 million um, uh, at the time of the 1998 election going into 1999 uh, to develop an anti-racism strategy. Um, again, it, 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 it balked a little bit because market research at the time um, indicated that there would be a pushback from significant 
parts of Australian society if there was strong leadership on anti-racism. And uh, by 1999, we rolled out the Living in Harmony program, which was, um, looking back and in retrospect, a very soft um, uh, 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 option to address um, those elements in the community um, that were pushing back on uh, cultural diversity and significant um, migration from uh, 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 from various parts of the world. Yeah. Con, it is interesting throughout all of that, though, that um, Australians' support for multiculturalism has just continued not to waver and, in actual fact, to grow. So there must be something happening regardless of the leadership at the local level that is really entrenching people's understanding and familiarity with um, new arrivals. Do you, can you think of um, any sort of strategies or, or programs that you've seen that might have been particularly effective in the past around uh, fostering integration and social cohesion? I think, as, as I said earlier in the discussion, I think there's been a significant shift in societal values and attitudes over the last two or three decades. Um, do you think those societal values have... What, what do you think has influenced those societal values? Um, it's a quote from Martin Luther King, um, and I can't remember it exactly, but it, it, it sort of says something like the arc of history, um, <laughs> uh, 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 um, you know, is it, a bit of a bow, but it, but it, 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 it leads into social justice and justice. And I think that's the way attitudes in Australia have <laughs> progressed in the post-war period. We've gone from being, not to mince words, a racist society pre-war, one that had an official white Australia policy, to one today that is overwhelmingly embracing cultural diversity um, and multiculturalism. Yeah. And I think that's because societal values have shifted, not only in Australia, but around the world. And feeding into that, um, uh, I think the greatest uh, uh, um, influencer on individuals and local communities is engagement. Yeah. When people engage with others from uh, uh, different cultures, uh, particularly people from particularly the new arrivals, um, once they have opportunities for engagement and forming friendships and uh, familiarity, that is the greatest eroder of othering people or, or, or being fearful or xenophobic about people from different cultures. And, and you know, cult Australian culture, can say in concrete, it's a work in progress uh, and, a, and a moving feast, and it evolves, and it's influenced by... Uh, long-time migrants and settlers and new arrivals, uh, and they both influence each other. And um, uh, it's, it's a mix of new arrivals uh, engaging with the Australian lifestyle and Australian values, if we can use mm -hmm. that term, um, but also uh, older established Australians um, opening their opening themselves to 
um, different cultures. Yeah. Uh, again, that happens. That happens at local level through engagement, and, and that's why um, various programs that we have that encourage and facilitate engagement of new arrivals with with other Australians and with other migrant communities. That's the that's the, that's the greatest um, uh, 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 leverage that we can have to uh, foster a community where people appreciate and value each other. A- absolutely. It, it is really interesting because quite apart from your very extensive career in, in policy development and, and the work that the government does at all sorts of different levels, you've, you've <laughs> gone above and beyond in regard to your volunteering uh, work that you do across the communities, but often at a very local level. And you were very well known for quite some time for a very extensive newsletter that you put out uh, regularly about all the activities that were happening across, certainly across Victoria, but probably well beyond, I imagine. Um, I'm just wondering if any one or two particular examples stand out to you of really effective programs that have been run that you really either participated in and enjoyed or ones that you know have had ramifications at that local level? There's a whole range of things that um, are happening at local levels. I mean, the whole Welcoming Cities um, initiative, for example, has a focus locally uh, through through uh, municipal, municipal local government. Um, so, again, I think... Um, <clears throat> That's been a wonderful initiative, particularly in the absence, and this is what's driven my engagement with Welcoming Cities, um, in the absence of the federal government from the late 1990s um, moving away from providing intergovernmental and community leadership on issues arising from cultural diversity. uh, uh, we had that um, uh, move away from strong national leadership from, since, the, since the late 1990s, and that's been compounded to some extent um, at state level, and I'm talking nationally, um, and uh, even at local level um, more recently, uh, 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 from organisations that provide leadership sectorally to local government. I think the attraction for me, for example, of the Welcoming Cities initiative is its local focus mm-hmm. and that it is operating in uh, not so much a vacuum, but uh, in a significant vacating of the leadership space, particularly for local government, from federal and state governments. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think ideally that leadership should come back. And th- I'm I'm hopeful and optimistic that this year's um, uh, multicultural framework review that's been conducted by the federal government will move us back to a position of federal government giving strong leadership to the whole sector intergovernmentally and to the community at large. But I, I agree with you that um, Though that sort of leadership is only meaningful when it translates to things happening on the ground at the grassroots level in local communities. 
It's interesting, Con, that you, because I had made a note to to raise this, the Multicultural Framework Review, which is about to be undertaken. Given what you've seen over all the time that you've been involved with this particular sector and the work that's been done in so many different areas, what are some of the things that you think need to be taken into consideration to ensure that that the um, the the broader society has a has a voice in this multicultural framework review what what do you think it should concentrate on um i think the starting point is having effective machinery of government to address multicultural public policy um i think looking back um uh, in the uh, through the post-war period the most significant period um of leadership from federal government on multicultural public policy development was 1987 to 1996, when the function of multicultural policy development was located in the Prime Minister's department. At the moment, it's in the Department of Home Affairs um, under the responsibility of the Minister for Immigration, uh, Multicultural Affairs and Citizenship. But from that position within the bureaucracy, multicultural policy development does not have the leverage with other portfolios that it would have if it, if it was in a central policy coordinating department. Once you've got the function within the Prime Minister's portfolio uh, in a position where you can vet and cast a multicultural lens across all cabinet submissions mm-hmm. and you, you're in a position to have significant leverage with Department of Health, with ageing, with disability, uh, 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 with, with, with all, of the, all of the portfolios, um, because at the end of the day, we've got to detach multicultural policy development from immigration. Yes. They're related they're related, but not exclusively. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the significance of multicultural public policy, if it's to be effective, is that it needs to be an all of government policy and it, and therefore it needs to be managed from a central policy coordinating um, uh, portfolio. And therefore I think the single most important prerequisite of effective policy development in the multicultural space is um, for it to be um, managed from a department like Prime Minister and Cabinet. Yeah. Now, the, the one of the um, uh, underlying fundamentals of doing this review is to ensure that they consult extensively across uh, all different communities across Australia. How feasible do you think that is? And, and is it something that other that other community-based organisations can actually help to facilitate? Absolutely. I, I think um, the re- review reference group and the review panel, um, and I'm sure they're looking at doing this already, um, that they should look for partnerships with key organisations that have that connection with, um, with communities at the local level. Organisations like... Um, Federation of Ethnic Communities of Australia, organisations like the various state-based ethnic communities councils who've got memberships in the various um, uh, local communities. Um, But 
The other thing to bear in mind, uh, Anthea, is that multiculturalism is not just for ethnics. <laughs> um, multicultural, multicultural public policy development is for all of us. Everyone. Um, um, uh, and just, uh, and uh, as I said earlier, Australian cultural identity is a work in progress. It's not something that's set in concrete. It's a, um, it's, it, 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 it's something that grows and evolves. Mm -hmm. um, and like the societies themselves right and um as you've said a couple of times um the broader australian community um uh, people from older established communities um just as they're paying far more attention than they did 20 and 30 years ago to the significance of indigenous culture in in in, in the um in in defining what it is to be australian um so too have more recent migrant communities fed into that evolution of Australian identity. Um, and so um, uh, in consulting with the community, um, I think uh, the uh, 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 individuals that have been charged with the responsibility of making recommendations to government by March next year need to find mechanisms to engage with the whole community. Mm -hmm. So obviously organisations like PECA, like ECCB, um, uh, will give the review panel an entree into migrant communities. Um, we also need to find uh, ways of engaging with the broader community so that we take everybody with us in terms of where we want to go with developing further. It is a really interesting thing, and I'll, I've got a couple, another couple of questions, but the, the the really interesting part about Australian, or in actual fact, society today, is that many of those structures that existed in the 1940s and 50s, whether it was through church or whether it was through local clubs, or many of those things don't necessarily exist in the same way as they used to. And uh, so getting even to people from European backgrounds becomes just as difficult as trying to find people from particular smaller minority communities. So have you got any thoughts about, um, I guess it ties in a little bit with societal values, but this whole sense of how society is actually changing and our ability to view ourselves as a uh, an all-encompassing multicultural community rather than one where there's the multicultural sector and there's everybody else. Any yes. thoughts on that? Yes, yes. No, I, 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 think, I think we need to break down that barrier um, and recognise that um, uh, 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 Australia is a multicultural uh, society now, uh, goes without saying, um, um, but more importantly, that multiculturalism and a multicultural identity where everybody has an opportunity to contribute to how we see ourselves as a people and a nation, um, uh, we, need to find, we need to find ways of getting everybody There'll always be an element, uh, Anthea, um, of people who are pushing back on this, yeah. uh, a minority, uh, but nevertheless a significant minority. And um, so we've, we've got to be careful that I suppose we, we don't talk in generalisations uh, that imply we're all on the same side because there are a range of views. Um, 
but look, that, that's a challenging question. I mean, certainly in the in the migrant and refugee affairs space, um, we're all familiar with a range of organisations at the national and state level that um, the review team for the multicultural framework review can partner with to. Uh, um, uh, access to and to consult with um, a range of views within migrant and refugee communities and you do that with the broader community um, uh, uh, as you say Anthea the institutions that were there representing the broader community particularly for example church organizations and so forth uh, aren't there anymore I suspect we need, we probably need to engage more uh, through, through, through the media and, mm -hmm. and, and in fact social media, but certainly the mainstream media, um, to have that uh, discussion and debate and engagement with, with the broader community. But also, it needs to. Be, I'm, I'm I'm presuming there uh, uh, we do consultations um, for the development of this new multicultural framework, there'll be some sort of face-to-face -face community consultations. And we just need to find ways that when we're inviting people to participate, we're not excluding anyone. Yeah. Thank you, Con. I've got one last question, though, uh, which is that you started this by saying the reason you got involved in uh, the multicultural space was because of your love of people. What got you involved in jazz? Oh, jazz, goodness. Um, look, I suppose that's out of left field, but I'll try. In the 60s, when I was at high school, um, there was a revival of um, a, a revival of African American blues music in the UK, uh, led by um, people like John Mayall and Eric Clapton and others. And that got us into when we we're high school kids. That got us into um, that got us into an interest in African American culture and music, um, uh, uh, and, and jazz. Uh, and um, I sort of put that to one side through my career, where I was very busy, um, you know, for forty or more years. Uh, but when I retired, I had more time to go back to that mm -hmm. interest that started really uh, uh, in adolescence. And um, uh, uh, and explore it more, and um, that's one of the interests that I've pursued uh, since I retired from paid work. Um, Absolutely, about eight, eight or nine years ago. Yeah, I remember you giving me a recommendation in, uh, when I was visiting New York about a place to go and hear uh, Woody Allen. I think playing yeah. jazz. Is that right? That, that's right. We saw him uh, in New York. Um, uh, I forget the name of the venue, but it was a hotel he played regularly at. Um, and he's quite an accomplished traditional jazz clarinetist, um, as was one of the people I was very close with, with in Melbourne, Nick Polites, who passed away 18 months ago. And I learned a lot from, from Nick, um, who was well-known and well-regarded, not only in Australia, but in New Orleans, where he was playing regularly <laughs> since about 1963. Um, so, um, and I suppose while we're on that subject, um, <laughs> uh, uh, Antia, jazz is a multicultural creation. Mm. Uh, it, it's, its genesis was in New Orleans, uh, and um, its genesis owed everything to the coming together of European, African, Anglo-American, Latin American influences uh, to create a new music form, which is in fact um, America's 
greatest cultural achievement, jazz. Um, but it's a it's a product of cultural diversity and the coming together of different cultures to create a new art form. Thank you. Thank you very much, Con. It is fascinating, isn't it, to see how many things have actually been the result of people coming together. So um, it's an absolute pleasure to have spent this time with you. Thank you very much. Uh, and thanks, Anzia, for the opportunity. Thank you. Our second guest today is author, consultant and community volunteer, Om Dungel. Om is a thought leader, passionate about helping individuals and organisations explore and use their full potential through a strengths-based approach. Having faced and overcome hardships through his own life experiences, including having to leave everything behind and flee his home country, Bhutan, his philosophy in life is to come out wiser through every challenge rather than remain wounded. A passionate humanitarian, Om currently spends half of his time in paid work and the other half in volunteering. He recently released his book, Bhutan to Blacktown, Losing Everything and Finding Australia. Welcome to the podcast, Om. Thank you, Andrea. Thank you so much for having me on this uh, program and the opportunity to have this conversation with you. Oh, it's a I real pleasure. I really, really <laughs> want to come in the transformational work that, you know, Scanlon Foundation does and really, you know, appreciate and commend your leadership. Oh, thank you very much, Om. But it's just as much a privilege for me to be talking to you. Your, your personal story is incredibly compelling, um, how has your experience of fleeing Bhutan and living as a refugee in Nepal shaped your perspective on migration in Australia? Okay, to start with migration, I think uh, I was just thinking about this, you know, uh, it's talk about migration. And I think migration is a phenomenon that has happened since time immemorial. <laughs> uh, there are but two kinds of migration. You know, one is a forced migration where you are forced to leave your country, home country, and other one is migration by choice. Now, it's also the, you know, the availability or the lack of choice. When it's forced migration, you don't choose where you go to most times. Mm -hmm. And when it's, you know, uh, migration by choice, then you basically decide where you want to go and, you know, choose to leave there. Now, Given my experience and what has happened around the world in the past, um, uh, migration, I find, is a normal human phenomenon <laughs> and uh, nothing to be scared of as uh, we see happening in different places, different parts of the world sometimes. Uh, but something to be embraced, I found, you know. Secondly, to create a life that you want in a post-migration, um, we are we really need to acknowledge the past which has already happened you know like i became a refugee that has happened you know like i can't really undo that uh, and move forward you know it doesn't really mean we forget the past but we simply acknowledge what has happened and how can we move from living in the regret of the past and the fear of the future as we were you know living as refugees we're actually living the learnings of the past because you have so much rich learning, you know, even as a refugee, and then look at the possibilities of the future. So, you know, it's about, you know, I tend to create belonging wherever I go and really enjoy being where I am. So for me, you know, a migration it needs to be, uh, you know, positive uh, sort of uh, outcome rather than, you know, uh, 
regretting the past and yeah. hanging on to the past. So really moving forward. Um, you strike me as being a, uh, an optimist most of the time. <laughs> um, I'm just curious as to whether or not you feel that optimism is something that is um, characteristic of people who might have gone through a similar life journey to you. Uh, at the end of the day, you find that there is no choice, uh, but not to be optimistic because when I had the choice to leave my country, like leaving behind my two-year-old daughter and my wife, you know, that was a choice I had. And if I was angry or frustrated or any other thing, like I would be, I, I was already suffering enough, you know, by the external factors. Yeah. Now, if I brought in more pain within myself, you know, internally generated, you know, feelings and pain, I would be adding to my own, you know, uh, suffering. So, you know, when that happens, then you just have that hope and, you know, uh, the, the creating a future that you want. Otherwise, uh, you've got nothing else. So, you know, why make it worse rather than, you know, create that, visualize something. If it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. But if it happens, then you have a new life. So I've had several instances where I had to do that. You know, one time I was, you know, uh, attacked by robbers and, you know, broken my head, you know, in almost in two pieces. And, you know, the blood was oozing out, you know, and I had to simply press my head and sort of think of my, you know, lovely parents and my siblings and think that they're waiting for me and I cannot let go myself. So sometimes you have to get to that situation. So I think optimism, optimism has saved my life and I wow. continue to feel that we can create that future by just being, giving that smile and, you know, going out there and let other people smile. Well, it's, it's quite it's quite an extraordinary example, but but nonetheless, I, I do think you do have, um, the, the impression is that you just have to keep moving forward. Yeah, and, that's And there's, there's certainly, in your career, you've continued to move in interesting directions. I mean, you had a career in telecommunications for a while. Um, so it's interesting to see that you've now moved into the social sector. Was there mm. a, a drive? I know, you know, everybody who's got children has a drive to that sense of financial security that you want to create yeah. for your family. So, yeah. so did you follow a path in order to ensure that that was your first priority, but now you're in a position to actually be able to give back in a way that you weren't before? I think I really find this topic really interesting where people have to make a career choice. And a lot of us get stuck and we are not able to move forward. But if you look at research, it shows that people will change their careers at least once in their lives, even in my generation. And I belong to the, the other generation. <laughs> now, uh, average person tends to go through three to seven career change. But in the current environment, the new generation, I think it will be more like, you know, five to seven, you know, uh, career changes. So if you keep those stats, the, the research in mind, like then uh, the career change doesn't become too painful. Sometimes, you know, I find migrants have this painful career change um, and we just have to take it as it's quite normal for a career change, you know, like uh, we, we, we do, you know, go through that change. And if you're coming to a different country and different environment, then it's going to happen anyway. So 
it was important for me to look at you know what opportunities this country offered and what transferable skills i had you know to avail mm-hmm. these opportunities uh and also like in my case sometimes we need to take a step back to take in you know, a two steps forward uh for instance before coming to australia i was trained as a telecom engineer and quickly moved into management now by the time i settled in australia i wasn't current with my technical skills so i couldn't really apply for a technical job and also i couldn't straight away get into a equivalent you know management position mm-hmm. because i didn't have local experience or in the you know like the local uh, knowledge of the you know organization that i was acting so i took up an entry level role at telstra after doing you know many odd casual roles including at a factory assembly line and you know like uh, at the coast checkout but given my qualification part experience i was able to move up fairly quickly and i think this is where we need to sort of you know uh, and my choice to move into social sector was again a choice that i made to see how can i make little more impact you know how, how in it was in pursuit of wanting to grow the impact of my work you know and i've been blessed to be resettled in this beautiful country and how i can you know my challenge is always you know challenging myself as to how can i contribute to the wider society and in particular to the cause of refugees around the world so perhaps for me it was that why you did drove my you know career change and i've sort of you know because i sort of very clear with my why i'm very comfortable with where i moved to now and what i do now um given that the um the range of experiences you've gone through from your home country all the way till now you must mm. come across quite a lot of misconceptions along the way have are there any that stand out in particular to you or ones that you found um have have sort of continued to to um exist within society that you wish that we could change if you sort of talk about more the you know career change and you know settling in a new country etc i think that's where i've seen that lot of there is a lot of support in this country for example and there are a lot of well meaning people wanting to help and i came across something which i thought like you know i you know It went through 50 52 applications and 52 rejections a lot of people know about <laughs> the story of mine and and a lot of people were sympathizing hey, oh you know what this is a racist country they won't give you a job because you are a refugee you are a migrant etc etc and i always thought about this i was digging a little deeper into it and thinking have i have not written i'm a refugee mm-hmm. i'm not like said there are people like me you know all of australia and why do should anybody discriminate me and at the end of the day we found that it was my you know individual skills it was the you know like uh, one of my skill migrant placement officer she did a mock interview and found that i wasn't maintaining an eye contact <laughs> and because i wasn't maintaining that eye contact they thought that one i was either telling a lie or two i wasn't confident so i wouldn't get the job Now once I started making that eye contact I had offers after offers. Yeah. So sometimes like you know we don't go deeper into the actual issues rather we sort of take the easier approach of saying oh you know this is a racist country this is you know as a migrant or refugees you don't get this but if you go deeper into it like you know people are so helpful I found people with a heart of gold. So really for any migrants or refugees out really you know encourage that we start looking at 
what transfer skills do I bring to this country rather than looking at, you know, like what position I had or what title I had. So I think that's something we need. If, if, if somebody is supporting a service provider is supporting people, then we need to help people to dig deeper into the actual problems rather than, uh, you know, taking things at the surface and, you know, blaming the institutions or the systems. Yeah. This, 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 uh, these personal anecdotes are so incredibly important. Are there one or two others that you could share with us that you share with other people that are trying to settle into Australia as to what they might like to think about or, or um, do in order to help their transition be more successful? We could go a little further into that, I think. Like, uh, I had lot of instances where you know after i went through that exercise i started sort of offered you know started helping people sort of say they don't have to go through this if they knew some you know small ticks and tricks you know <laughs> uh, and i was working with you know i was again get referred people referred to me although i'm i am not in institutions anything so somebody will say can you, you go to home and he might help you and i had a lady long time ago like she came from uh former us and uh when i started this conversation she said um like you know i kept asking her what do you what did you do what what are your skills do you have a resume etc and she always said that oh i lived in a refugee camp i know nothing i have nothing i didn't know anything and then we started from the nothing and started having that conversation after three conversations or four convers three conversations I found that she had a lot more skills and expertise than I had as a woman with raising, having three children and, you know, husband, you know, working outside, you know, all that time management skills, you know, raising children and like, you know, so many other skills she had. And she was also volunteering in the community, in the refugee camp, you know, leading a group of women. And she discounted all that, mm -hmm. uh, thinking that that was in a refugee camp. So, so if you start yeah. digging deeper into people's sort of, what did you do? Like, you know, you may not have a title or you may be just a volunteer, but then you have done so much in as a refugee in a refugee camp. Mm -hmm. So you, I always ask people, hey, what's your passion? Yes. <laughs> what did you love doing? What, what did you do in the camp? And somebody said, oh, I was hairdresser. Okay, that's a starting point. Fantastic. Like, you know, you can get this person engaged and you get this person connected with the hairdresser. And you don't force this person to learn English because, you know, that person was to be hairdresser anyway. Mm -hmm. If you're a French speaking or German speaking or whatever, Afghanistan, like, or Bhutan, they would want to be a hairdresser. They need to learn language. Mm -hmm. So they'll make every effort to learn the language while becoming a hairdresser. So yeah. I think if we just flip the approach we have in terms of what passion and strengths we have, let's start talking about that and in the process address the needs but yeah. currently we tend to focus on hey what do you need oh you don't know the language so you start learning the language but the person doesn't know why he or she's learning the language would she ever get there <laughs> doesn't have the clues so i think if we simply flip the approach that we currently have in terms of being nice and helping people how do we nurture what they already have yeah there's that optimism again uh, um, I suspect that there are people that just come and spend time with you just to get re-motivated to keep on going. 
so I'm not surprised. Thank you. There, there are also situations, though, aren't there, where the um, sort of the uh, work environment is something that you're unfamiliar with in the, the same way that you talked about the interview skills. I, yes. was, I heard from somebody recently about a young man who had had casual jobs in a warehouse but had been successful in getting a new job recently where he was at a desk and it was an ongoing permanent role well, he hadn't had that experience before. And so after the first week, which had been incredibly busy and very full on, he decided to take a few days off. And um, and they, um, my friend caught up with him uh, in Woolworths and asked him, how come you're here? And he said, well, I, you know, I just thought I would take a few days off. And it was because he was so used to doing casual work where if you um, you had shifts, and if you yeah. didn't necessarily want to, um, you were a bit tired and didn't want to go, you just didn't answer the person that was calling and they'd give that shift to somebody else. And he was completely unfamiliar with the fact that if you were going to take a few days off, you actually had to tell people ahead of time. So there was no malice in what he was doing and he wasn't being tardy. He was mm. just not familiar with the processes and nobody had explained that those were the expectations. So sometimes yeah. it's that process on both people's sides, isn't it, just to – what what you presume people know and what they actually yeah. know. Yeah. And in fact, you raise a very important point, Anthea, because initially when the Putinist Cemented Settlement Program started back in 2008, they were very well-meaning service providers. They said, oh, and this fellow is really smart. You know, he's doing some voluntary work. We'll give him a permanent role. They said, no, 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 slow down. Like, let them learn, the, you know, like basics before they get into so that they're not getting a favor, you know, in comparison to others, rather they become equally competent so that they can do the job later. Because if you sort of simply give them a job as a favor, then, you know, like they won't be able to perform and later on they, you know, fail, you know, have a, they'll have a bigger fall. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, we said that we let them take this opportunity to, you know, do some voluntary work, let them get trained, let them get acclimatized with the local environment, and then as equivalent to everybody else, you give them a job in, in a, as a competitive sort of through a competitive process rather than giving them a favor. Yeah. So we were very conscious of that, you know, people being failed or some organizations saying that, okay, we want more people with lived experience and, you know, get more people with, you know, refugee background. But then they need to build their capacity first, yeah. be competent and know that, you know, the current local work environment before they can get it's this so is really important, important, isn't it, that that organisations yes. be learning spaces as well as the individuals yes. themselves. So it's a two-way street. That's Absolutely. Right. Now, we've mentioned a couple of times that you've recently released a book. And, uh, and I'm curious because there is a lot of talk around about the storytelling process, but you collaborated with James Button in writing that book. Yeah. Why did you choose to collaborate and what was that experience like of storytelling your own personal story by working with somebody else that perhaps hadn't necessarily had any of those sorts of experiences that you wanted to tell? Yeah. I, I've got a fairly, again, it goes back to its Scanlon Foundation. That's why I started by saying, you know, I'm really, you know, appreciative of the work that, you know, the Scanlon Foundation does because, you know, it was one of those projects where I think Scanlon Foundation commissioned a project to do, uh, you know, Blackdown narrative years ago. Yes. And that's where James contacted me and somebody told him that you got talked to him if you're doing something <laughs> for Blacktown. 
and that's where our journey started and we had you know after a number of coffee catch ups at uh, you know two by four cafe at fairwater in blacktown you know we got a lovely cafe next to her and you know we started a conversation and we james did that piece of work and our chapter was dedicated to my own work in there and during that time i learned that like i had written a manuscript for my book about 10 years oh i left telstra back in 2013 and you know i used to have a notebook next to my desk you know <laughs> bed, bed, bedside table and you know like i'll get up you know I'll have some thoughts around two o'clock at night and get up and you know start writing and later on i realized that i was disturbing my wife and that i would not switch on the lights but i'll stick to something and <laughs> next day i would sometimes make out what it is or sometimes i wouldn't make out what it was but <laughs> That's where I started that and 10 years ago I had done a draft manuscript and when I met James and started talking about it I thought wow this is really interesting because I have a story but James is a story writer and if I did on my own like you know maybe you know 1000 people would read it or <laughs> maybe 500 people would read it because uh, would I be able to make people turn a page You know that's really important when people want. You know there are so many books around there. Who knows? You know what's yeah. Om Dungil's story about? So it had to be made readable. So I think that that's when we continue to have that conversation. And uh, James offered to sort of work with me. And I thought, like, this is what I've been doing for the last. You know, since this book was announced, you know, launch of the book was announced, I have been getting calls from all over the world. It's really from the diaspora, Buddhist diaspora. And, oh, my uncle, I wanted to write a book, but, you know, uh -huh. I don't know where to start. And this is what I'm telling them, you know, guys, don't do it alone if you don't have that capability. And I have done a lot of writing myself, but I didn't feel that, you know, this uh, for the quality of the book that we wanted, I had that capacity. So, uh, you know, like it was almost standing on, you know James's shoulder in terms of <laughs> the quality of the writing that we would get into this book and i had that story so i think uh, that was the reason i think uh, we sort of collaborated and yeah. we built that friendship and you know James has um you know and his family they come when they come to sydney we spend a lot of time together and sharing a lot of you know dumplings and <laughs> you know <laughs> glass of wine and when i visit there like you know melvin up there meeting his mom and he's got a lovely mom yeah. in the 90s and we both have moms in our 90s so <laughs> there's so much common between us and he's, he's just a... you know i'm blessed to have someone like him and you know sitting in south express which is again amazing publisher oh he he's a uh, an amazing storyteller james yeah quite an terrific amazing, simple such a simple man like yes. you know my daughter and my full family keeps talking about him <laughs> <laughs> just yeah. one last question on before we finish yeah. what do uh, you think what do you think australia can do better when it comes to building a prosperous and vibrant society Oh, that's uh, that's big. <laughs> <laughs> Thought I'd finish on a simple question. Yeah, as as Australians, I think we really have the opportunity to start with what's common, because we are a diverse community. And like, if I look at our black town, we have people from 188 different countries, and we speak 182 languages. Yeah. And if we start protecting our own turf, like we could be heading somewhere. So I think I always think of you know. as australians you know like let's start uh, with what's common you know for us for instance in my case we can start with what's common as blacktown residents mm -hmm. 
we all want a safe neighborhood and we all want a clean neighborhood yeah. a neighborhood that where you know children can play with each other where elderly are taken care of and they can walk around and feel safe that's all very common absolutely everybody But wants the same we, things yeah if we start with our religious or ethnic background or nationality then we are starting with our differences yeah and once you identify with a certain identity like our king did you know like he identified with the northern bhutanese and he had to protect the northern bhutanese at any cost mm-hmm. so he you know evicted other half of the country so uh, uh, one seventh of the population so for us i think start with what's common we develop better understanding of each other we develop better relationships and we start enjoying each other's company yeah. culture each other's food and we can create a prosperous and thriving in my case multicultural black town and by extension a thriving multicultural australia yeah it's a wonderful thought and and i absolutely agree we have to stick to the issues that everybody has in common and not yes. worry about exactly where people have come from it's uh, relatively uh, irrelevant when it comes to how we live our daily lives um, yeah and also finally build on what we have already have rather than focusing on what we need so how do we build a not culture what people already have what's already working in our communities mm-hmm. in blacktown a lot of things are working in this community yes so how do we build on what's already working on it nurturing and let it you know uh, flourish absolutely a great piece of advice um thank you very much and thank you very much for participating in this podcast i really appreciate thank it thank you and thank you for the opportunity i love it on to you <laughs> Well, Faisal, thank you. Um, you're our producer on this uh, this Hi. podcast, and so I thought it'd be great for you and I to just have a bit of a chat after two really, really interesting interviews that we've just had with Con Pagonas and Om Dungel. Yeah. Uh, really interesting juxtaposition, one quite historic and and the history that uh, that Con had experienced uh, around. uh various policies and leadership and uh, which was something that came out very clearly with what he had to say and then I'm having a very personal experience of coming here as a refugee um I just thought I'd hear your yeah. views on well, on this I think uh, I was trying to keep count of how many times uh Con mentioned the word leadership mm-hmm. so I think that message came out loud <laughs> and clear um it was really interesting for me I don't know how you felt about the nature of my like my my multiculturalism and immigration being separate like n- concepts yeah related he said related, but different but different but the nature for it to be in part of a central coordinating body like a prime minister's office etc that was something probably going to be part of the multicultural framework that's going well, on c- certainly i think that um that influence of such a framework across all departments was is really imperative if we're really going to make this an integrated way of Australia working and not something that's just off to the side as it were. Yeah. So I think that's that's really important. And even his his interest in jazz I thought that was a, <laughs> a really left field but it was great it was a really great uh, contribution even how he he linked it. I think there are yeah how did you feel about the similarities between what Con was saying about um the barriers for people to getting to know each other and what Om was saying is trying to find the commonalities in people i i thought that 
what they were both saying really linked well. Did you feel the same? Absolutely, but also how how powerful that local community is, that whether or not you're talking about common issues that we all have in our local communities or whether it's about building that sense of familiarity and collaboration, um, both of those were really powerful messages, I think, but you can't underestimate, as he said, the importance of leadership and language about how do we talk about multiculturalism within Australia. So I think there's some very important things. Sometimes I think leaders don't necessarily have the language, which you don't need to worry about at the local level. People are just talking about stuff and life and what it's all about, whereas leaders seem to think that there's sort of do's and don'ts and they get all caught up with themselves. I think both uh, Con and Om, I don't think they used a lot of jargon, which is kind of telling us how this is life, yeah. you know, when this isn't some distant thing, it isn't some random policy on the shelf that needs a particular sophisticated language. Sometimes these things are rather simple. Absolutely. Now, it's it's going to be really interesting. Now, this is the, the first of our episodes in this second series of Voices of Australia, so really looking forward to what the next few episodes actually involve and the interviews that we're going to be having. Yeah. should be really good. Yeah, I agree, and I think... Um, I hope that we get more of those kinds of unpacking of, you know, there's some of those misconceptions. So I think it was a great start. Absolutely. And and we're going to be dealing with some very current issues. So looking forward to it also. Um, looking forward to having a bit of a chat with you after each of the yeah, episodes as well. So. It's great to be here on the other side, <laughs> this time with the camera. So, uh, yeah, thanks for having me, Anthea. <laughs> You're going to be sticking around. <laughs> thanks, Faisal. We'll look forward to seeing you next time. Thanks for tuning in to the Voices of Australia podcast, brought to you by the Scanlon Foundation Research Institute. This podcast is produced by me, Faisal Farah, and with audio, visual, recording and editing by John Bigelow from Interactive Media Solutions. Research for each episode is provided by Agalos Macrijorjos and Matthew Skidmore. Original music is by Steve Klapsinos. Learn more about the Scanlon Foundation Research Institute and all its works by visiting the website www.scanlaninstitute.org.au